turn back to uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And like I mentioned, there, there's so much here. We're still going to take kind of a the 10,000 view look at this and get our arms wrapped around the, 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 the general summary of, of this amazing chapter, really this amazing book. Hebrews does such a great job of, of, of taking that, that, that Jewish reader, that Jewish mindset. And, and that's what we have to do. When we read the Bible, we have to understand that this was written in context. It, it was written to a church. It was written to a people. It was written during a time. It was written for specific questions and issues and, and, and problems. And so we start when we interpret and, and read and understand the Bible with that premise. We start with that understanding that this is a book that's written primarily to a Jewish thinking audience that's in the beginning of the church age. So for all these centuries, the mindset has been the Old Testament mindset that if you sinned, the only way to be pardoned from your sin was you had to get to the temple. You had to find a priest. You had to find a, an altar, right? And, and have that priest who is your mediator make that sacrifice on your behalf for your sin, for your payment. That that was what had to happen in order to be clear from sin. But then Jesus came. And Jesus came and he dies on the cross. And the message becomes, well, you don't need the sacrificial system anymore because Jesus did it. And, and you have to understand the immediate confusion that would create. When for so long, something that was just so clear in understanding and, and basic is now different. And so they're struggling. They're struggling with understanding Wait a minute, the, the most holy of, of all things would be our tabernacle and the temple and the most holy of men would be the high priest. And, and now you're telling me, no, that's Jesus. And, and this temple really doesn't mean anything. This brick and mortar, I don't care if it's, if it's canvas tent or if it's stone or if it's gold, the building means nothing. And they're struggling with that, and they're struggling with the understanding of that, and they're struggling with the understanding of, okay, so we're going to wipe out the whole thing and bring in a whole new deal. It's like, well, not quite. This is a completion of the Old Covenant. This is a continuation. And so that creates uh, confusion. Okay, well, which pieces do we keep? Which ones don't? And to this day... We still see people struggling with that. We still see uh, a modern-day uh, Christian church that would look to the Old Testament, and, and there's a lot of confusion of, okay, well, in the Old Testament, you had to do these things in order to be saved, right? And so, in the New Testament, that means you have to be circumcised. You have to be 
baptized. You have to take communion. Those are our New Testament believers looking back at Old Testament concepts and thinking that, okay, that's what has to be fused together. And those are, are, are not accurate. And so Hebrews 9 then starts talking about this concept of substitutionary atonement. And we see in verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. And so right away we, 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 we have a, an indicator. Okay, there was a first covenant, which should immediately make you think, well, now there's a, another covenant. Now there's a second covenant, right? And so again, remember when we're thinking of the old covenant, we're thinking of the old Jewish sacrificial system. The new covenant now is Jesus and, and being on the cross. And in other ways of looking at it, we've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we see that there was this first covenant and it had these regulations of divine worship. What kind of regulations? Well, that's what we're talking about. What took place in the temple with the substitutionary atonement. And so substitute is really simple term. It's the idea of replacing or taking the place of another. We all grew up having substitute teachers, right? You had your main teacher. And then your main teacher couldn't be there. And so today we're going to have a substitute. They, they take their place. And then we have this idea of atonement. Atonement is that spiritual reconciliation to make amends for your sin. Uh, to satisfy uh, the payment for sin so that you were justified. So that you, before standing before the judge, were, were deemed innocent. Right? Well, the only way to be deemed innocent was you would have to have that, that lamb sacrifice in your place dying, providing the blood to then atone for your sin. So this idea then of somebody else uh, making up for your sin was set in, in place all the way back in the beginning. And so what we've been talking about in the last few chapters with Jesus being this great and amazing high priest, the better high priest, he's better than the old covenant priests who were just men. They were just people. And so all that is related to this, this temple. And again, you have to understand that for a Jew, temple's everything. I mean, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, hey, I don't want you guys, you know, breaking your neck to come to church because somehow you think you're saved just by coming to church and you don't want to miss any days. Well, if you think we have hangups with that, the Jews, I mean, you have to go to temple. I mean, you have to go to temple. And, and what happened in temple? Ironically, I, I, I love the setup of our little church because it really does remind me of, of, of temple. And so what you would have is you had these two buildings. Well, first of all, the whole building was the temple and the holy place, right? And you would enter in, but you had the holy place, the main room, but then you also had the holy of holies. And it's funny, my mom earlier was like, oh, I've never been in that room back there. And it's like, and you never will, because that's the holy of holies. You're not allowed, right? Well, we laugh at that, but that's the way it was. Just imagine going to church, and in this room, this is all you ever see. 
and we'll ever see is a veil. That's it. And, and me, I only go in there once a year. That's it. Because back here is so holy. It's called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. And that's where the mercy seat is. And that's where God hovered over and dwelt with Israel in, in the center of the camp during uh, their years of wandering. And so the altar burnt offering, well, that was the altar where, where the animals would be sacrificed. That's the altar. Well, the new altar becomes the cross where Jesus will be sacrificed. Uh, there was this big, giant laver where there would be the washing uh, of the hands. Now, again, it's hard for us to picture this, but just imagine this room. If each one of you brought up a lamb, and, and we came here and we slit its throat, and it bled all over the place. But wouldn't it take long for this place to become a bloody mess? And imagine what I would look like, right? There would be blood all over me if you guys have ever seen a butcher or even been to a slaughterhouse. And so there's this big labor where there was a cleansing, a, a, a purification. And, and so that then would come to mean that this is the idea where Jesus will purify us from our sin and he himself is pure and clean from sin. Well, they had the table of showbread, which again was this table and had the showbread. Maybe you remember the, the phrase, David ate the showbread, right? When he was starving, he stuck in the temple and he, and he stuck the, the showbread. The bread was always there. It was this sign of perpetual um, it was, a, it was a continual presentation and it continues in the New Testament with this idea of the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life, right? He gives life. Well, the lampstand, that would be part of the furniture that would be in the, the tabernacle. And, and the lampstand is representing kind of the spirit of life. And again, we see Jesus being, you know, the light of the world. Then we see the altar of incense and the incense was to to, you know, it's these smells that, that go up to God and it's a fragrance and an aroma and it was to represent our prayers that go up to God and God hears and, and smells our, our worship and, and our prayer. The Ark of the Covenant would be the, the keeper of God's word. It actually housed the Ten Commandments, right? It was in the Ark of the Covenant and Jesus would become the word. I am the word, right? In the beginning was the Word, and I was with the Word, and I was the Word. And then finally we see the, 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 the best piece of furniture in the tabernacle is the mercy seat. The mercy seat itself. And, and, and that's where, by definition, the mercy seat is where one and only one can sit, and that's the king. And the king sits on his throne, on his mercy seat. And what does he do on the mercy seat? Instead of doling out judgment, he grants mercy. He doesn't give people the punishment that they deserve for their sin. So, the big mistake then would be thinking that Jesus was sitting around and was sifting through his Old Testament scriptures and, th and thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to copy all the stuff that you see in, in, the, in the temple and I'm going to mirror that stuff so that we could identify 
Christ with that stuff. That's not the way it happened, no. In fact, God had placed all these items to emulate Christ. And that is a huge distinction. Huge distinction. Because what it does is it sets in place thousands of years before Jesus is alive. These are the pieces to the puzzle that ultimately lead and are expressing and describing and illustrating how we're saved. It's kind of important, right? And we're not to be confused about, you know, lavers and and mercy seats and veils. These are all then pictures pointing, all the arrows point in the same direction in different ways to Jesus Christ. And that's the whole point of Hebrews in that Jesus is better. He's better than veils. He's better than lampstands. He's better than labors. He's better than the ark. He's better than any piece of furniture you could ever imagine, even and especially in the temple. So, Jewish guy, Jewish mindset, religiosity guy that thinks, no, the only way that you can have a big, strong, thriving, thriving religion is you have to have big, amazing buildings, right? That like show the amazing awesomeness of God through buildings. God never intended that as a model. His model was always pointing to the Messiah, the Christ, the Chosen One, Jesus Christ, which then is also going to be pointing to something much better, which is spiritual. So, in in chapter 9, what we see then is we see kind of five points Again, describing why Jesus is better, describing the superiority of Jesus Christ in personally atoning for our sin. And so this reveals the greatness of Christ. We see the the setting for substitutionary atonement. We see the service order of substitutionary atonement, the superiority of the new covenant in this substitutionary atonement. The shedding of Jesus' blood for substitutionary atonement. And then the sacrifice made through substitutionary atonement. So again, remember last week we learned there's a better covenant in three ways. In the majesty, right? Because Jesus was a majestic high priest. Not just a high priest, but a holy, majestic one, a spiritual one. He was the mediator, not just a mediator, not just a priest, but the perfect mediator. And then in application in his mercy. So the first thing we want to look at today is the setting for substitutionary atonement. uh, Verses 1 through 5. Now even the first covenant had regulations of uh, divine worship. And the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared. The outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Out of those things we cannot now speak in detail. Well, so we see the... Uh, the idea here that this this tabernacle, 
this this place and, and that's what we've been talking about has huge huge implications well the first one is this idea of there was a first covenant and now we have a second covenant remember this term covenant is not a light phrase okay when, when you see covenant there, there is no term that, that more graphically illustrates God's power and his commitment. His power and his commitment. When God makes oaths, when he makes promises, he keeps them. And, and he does them through these, these covenants which require blood. The, for them, when they would do a covenant, what, they would take an animal and they would cut it in half. Right? And then they would split it in half and they would walk through the middle of it. And that would, that would seal the deal of the covenant. Kind of like your, you know, the version of, you know, spitting in your hand, right? You know, let's shake on it. Right? Well, this is the way it was described in, in, in back in Genesis. Uh, we saw that with the Abrahamic covenant where God himself, you know, went through um, the, the heifer symbolizing this is my covenant that I'm making with you. And so covenants are ratified by blood. This is why the old covenant, the first covenant, started, but then there was a second one that got inaugurated or it got ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ. So in that, God's new covenant has now begun. And, and so again, it goes back to this this kind of understanding, well, the setting for atonement was this understanding of not just a, a pile of rocks, right, for altar sacrifice, which is what we saw for a long time in the Old Testament. And remember, every time they would go somewhere, when Noah would get off the ark, the first thing they'd do is they'd, they'd build an altar, right, to make sacrifice, to make atonement for sin. This is a very, very big deal. The altar is... Is, is, is the most holy of places for religious belief. Now again, transition that to today, where, again, we have to be careful that we don't think, well, the way I get holy is by coming to this building on Sunday mornings. Well, if I really want to get serious about being friends with Jesus and praying with him every day, then i got to find a church building to do that inside. And one of the biggest changes from the old covenant to the new was that this was going to be a spiritual change, right? And so now you don't have to go to this holy place. You can be saved right here. You can have a relationship with God right here. You can have atonement from your sin right here. Your body, then, is a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, one of the great promises of the New Covenant. But the symbolic nature, and that's why we went into it earlier, of the, of the tabernacle wasn't quite understood by the Old Testament Jews. But now, hopefully, you guys understand and can see, okay, now we see all these different pieces that were in place but how Jesus is the, the fulfillment of all of those things. God had a plan. 
He gave us a physical picture of what that was, a reminder, if you will, of what it looked like. But make no mistake, make no mistake, that was the first, that was the setting. Well, what does it really look like? Well, verse 6, the service order. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second... Only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the sins of people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. According, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So again, as we progress through this chapter, we, we see the Old Testament ways, the, symbolic, the, the symbolism that we see in those um, processes that were were just a foreshadowing of, of Christ. We see here in verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. This may not seem like a big deal to you because you're used to the Holy Spirit, right? You, you've heard the phrase, you're, you're familiar with the office. But at this point in time, again, you have to put yourself back into the first century church. You have to put yourself back into, you know, that Jewish mindset. And we're saying, look, we're making a transition here from this, this role, this service order of this is how you live life. Okay? You live, you sin, you march into church, you march into the temple, you march over to the priest. He makes the sacrifice for you. First, he makes it for himself once a year. Uh, Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, the high priest. First, he has to cleanse himself because he's a sinner too. Then he's going to make sacrifice for you, even for your unknown sin. Remember, we talked about that. And all this is taking is, is now going to transition from this literal physical acts to this process that happens through the Holy Spirit. Well, this is just a just a little a little flick that's kind of thrown out here as almost a throwaway line, but we have to kind of keep our, our finger plugged in here and understand, okay, this service order of substitutionary atonement is a spiritual one, a spiritual one, not a physical one through like the work service of temple and priestly sacrifices. So Again, when we look back to the Old Testament and we see these examples like Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? There's no temple. There's no priest. They go to the altar. They, they make a, a, a sacrifice of worship, right? They learn that because when they committed their first sin and they tried to cover their sin themselves, they tried to make atonement themselves and God rebuked that and he provided the garment of skin. From that moment on, we saw, you know, again, we see um, 
illustrations of things like the Passover, where in order for the angel of death to pass over Israel, to pass over uh, their families from, from judging them, all they had to do by faith was put the blood over the doorposts. It was an, another graphic symbol of this blood atoning sacrifice that would take place. We even see a, another example of the brazen serpent, right? Where they, the serpent gets raised on the post. And if you look up and with faith, uh, because you've been bitten by the snake, you won't die. But in that, we also saw there was a judgment too, right? There was a judgment in that. If you don't look up at the serpent, then you will die. You will suffer the consequence from the snake bite. We also saw the symbolic gesture of, of a whole city being destroyed by their sin because of the consequences of their sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so what we're learning here, and it all comes kind of to this head in Hebrews, is, oh, all those different examples, all those different stories, those, those were symbols those were symbols of grace. Those were symbols of mercy. Those were symbols of, of judgment. Those were symbols of wrath. But there would actually be a real representation of that. And there would actually be a real way of escape from our sin through the service order, not of priests, but of substitutionary atonement. Well, how, how does that unfold? Well, verse 11 the superiority of the new covenant then comes into play. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, but, okay, every, everybody stop. But, okay, now, now when Christ appeared, hold the fort as a high priest. Remember, we're still talking about Jesus being the high priest. Of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Okay, Jesus didn't come into the building tabernacle. That's not what he did. Well, what, what did he do? Um, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. What greater tabernacle? What, what perfect tabernacle? Not made with hands. That is to say, not this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So where and what was the holy of holies? It was the cross. The cross becomes the tabernacle. The cross becomes the place of atonement and sacrifice. The cross becomes the holy of holies. And so here as we, we progress through, we go from this Old Testament understanding of Holy of Holies. We now see Jesus Christ appears not only as the high priest, but in these two verses here we go, here's the high priest that's going to make the offering, the temple sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice, and the high priest himself through his own blood verse 12 is going to be the sacrifice he enters the holy so you have to picture the high priest coming in so if he doesn't have a lamb with him he doesn't have a heifer he comes in and, and he puts himself on the altar 
That's the picture that we're supposed to clearly understand. And Jesus does this by putting himself on the cross. And when he does this, when this high priest comes, this, remember back in chapter 7, verse 26, for it was fitting that we should have this kind of high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is the one who then now is going to be placed as the sacrifice. And because he's holy, because he's undefiled, because he's perfect, we're only going to need now one sacrifice. One. Once, one time, one time forever. Verse 12, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So, you know, we have, I don't know how many cars we have in our family right now. I think we have six cars. So somehow, you know, I've got the, the privilege of getting to, you know, go to the DOL. Then, of course, you know, they always say, now you got to go to emissions. Then you go to emissions, back to the DOL, right? This whole process. Now, how many of us wouldn't rather just say, look, if we can get this car, make one lifetime payment, and never, ever have to go to the DOL or to the emissions again, we would make that deal in a heartbeat, right? We would do it once for all time. Well, imagine this. Imagine this, the superiority of the new covenant versus the old covenant. The old covenant, we had to go in time after time after time. We we had to depend on there being a tabernacle somewhere relatively close to where we were. We had to rely on on that, that priest. The thing that always gets to me is I think, well, who is this priest who's making atonement for my sin? Who's this guy? Right? Is he all right? Should he be the one making atonement for me? Well, that's the way I have to go about doing it. I have to go through that way. Um, Well, this new covenant now, Christ himself as this amazing, perfect high priest, and now we even see this transition as this amazing and perfect lamb, he will be the one that will make that substitutionary atonement And he is superior to the old method. So now he is the mediator of this new covenant. So he's the negotiator. He's the payment. He's the arbitrator. He's the judge. He's the offering. He's everything. Well, that's good. Because he's perfect. He's holy. He's complete. And his sacrifice is eternal forever. It's majestic as we saw last week. Well, verse 16, we see the shedding for, for personal substitutionary atonement. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Well, back up a second. Remember in verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, the sprinkling of those who had been defiled, sanctifying for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will it be the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant in order that since a death had taken place, why? For the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive a promise of eternal inheritance. Wow, what a, what a promise. What an, what an amazing thing that much more than the blood of goats and bulls, is the blood of Christ. And why? Why does it have to take place this way? Because as I mentioned, the ratification of a covenant, of the new covenant, had to require blood. Verse 16. For where a covenant is, there must, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. There must be blood. There must be the ratification. This is the process that God sets in place way back in, in the Old Testament. You don't understand why does it have to happen this way? Why does something have to die? And then we come to the cross and realize because Jesus had to die. He had to die in order to spill the blood to make payment. And the only way for us to, to be granted with the blessing of the covenant is through death. It's just like a, a, a life insurance policy, right? When, 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 when does it actually get paid out? Well, when somebody dies, right? When somebody dies, that's then when the beneficiaries receive the blessing of the promise of the contract. The contract is enacted, but it's not satisfied until the death. And so all things then are cleansed by, by this blood. Verse 17, For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. It's like a will. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. That was the Mosaic covenant. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded. So again, take a step back. We're, we're back in the, in the beginning of the church. You got the Jewish mindset, trying to be set straight, trying to get them focused back on, okay, understand how covenants work. Understand how God's promises work. There must be a, sa a blood sacrifice. And so this, this Jesus, this Jesus is that blood sacrifice. Yes, he's the high priest. Yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he's the lamb of God, the blood sacrifice as well. You guys could understand the confusion. He is, it's almost like everywhere you turn. Oh, that's Jesus too? Oh, and, and that too? Oh, and that too? See, we've kind of grown up around it. We're used to the symbolism. We're, we're used to, to the dual titles and roles that Jesus has. This is all brand new for them. This is all brand new. Until now, everybody and everything else. It's Father Abraham. It's Moses. It's, it's the first 
um, uh, covenant, right? All these other pieces have way more importance and meaning than Jesus. And now they're being told every step of the way, Jesus, 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 Jesus again. All that was pointing towards the one, the one person. This is why it's better. Because it's a personal sacrifice. Verse 23, Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things with themselves with a better sacrifice than these. Remember last week when we were talking about the majesticness of it and how majestic is a special term that we really only speak, see in a, in a magnificent spiritual way? The, the most difficult thing for the early church and especially the Jewish mindset was taking these physical, literal, um, religious things and not understanding that it's about the spiritual. And, and, and again, we have to be careful of the same thing today. That when we start talking about the reason why we do things, it's not we don't do things and deeds and works to earn our salvation because Jesus has already died and paid for that. But in a spiritual sense, we do this because it's the way we are now. Because we think heavenly, not physically, not earthly. We're heavenly minded now. We think of these better sacrifices, not earthly sacrifices, not blood of goats and bulls. We don't think like that. We think spiritually now. What's the spiritual mindset that I'm supposed to identify with. This is the, the, the reason why we, we struggle so much in the modern churches. We're constantly, we're, we're, we're doing this. We're, we're, we're starting with, with man. Okay, what is, what, where does a man think about this passage? What is a man's position here? And how can we relate this passage to this guy? Right? And so the whole sermon then, is looks at the context of, of the passage and tries to relate it to a you know 2019 guy, right or gal. Well, that's not how Scripture is written. It's not written that way. It's not written to to appeal to you today. Um, it's kind of like the old Greek and Roman gods. They they created Greek and Roman gods emulated after people, after men. But see, we make the mistake that Psalm 50, 21 says, see, you thought, this is God speaking, you thought I was like you. See, God's not like you. And, and the danger we is we try to make him like us. And, and, and if we try to preach like, okay, th this is how philosophically how this will work in our minds. To, to make this humanly understandable. But that's the wrong starting point. And see, the wrong starting point, again, is to come to church, to come to the scriptures, and, and, and really to think, hmm, what, what does this book have for me? You know, that, that will help me go live in 2019. What we really should be going is, what, what does this book mean? What is God saying here? What am, what am I to understand that God is trying to to convince me of. And then when I read it, and it says, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things 
in the heavens to be cleansed, but heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heavens itself, now to appear into the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year by year, not with blood of his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer since the foundation of the world. But now, once the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await for him. So what are we supposed to cling to here? Are we supposed to cling to the the duties of the temple, of the temple priest? Are we supposed to cling to the law? We, We don't... What we see here is we're supposed to cling to Christ because He is the sacrifice for our sins. He already died. We're already forgiven. And so now we have to think as we look look at this, okay, well, where do we go from here? Our sin has been substituted for. So Christ now has appeared, what did he do? He died for our sins. But guess what? He's coming back. Then the question is, well, first of all, are you ready? Are you ready for him to come back today? Are, are you ready today? And, and secondly, who are you telling about Christ? Who, who are you telling, you know, that, you know, I mean, look, if, if there was some like, shop on four corners you know they they had a new a new strip mall and you know one of the buildings was debt consolidation and the other one was you can take all your tickets and they'll wipe them out and another one is you know they have the get out of jail free cards you'd be telling everybody right there's a mortgage one across the street and they're just going to pay your mortgages off okay you guys will leave right now so what are we doing about hey let's listen we have a free gift of salvation that was bought and paid for once for all of us. A substitution that was made on your behalf by Jesus Christ. Don't miss that story. Don't miss that truth. This is what our God has done for us. And we can get all caught up in in the intricacies of the temple and the symbolism and, and what all that means and the difference between the old and the new. It's like, you know what? It's really, really simple that through his own blood, Jesus pays the price for your sin. That's the gospel message. And as I read this over and over and over again, as much as we can get so caught up in all kinds of detail, because there's a lot of stuff here, I don't want us to miss the key point that Christ is our perfect high priest and never ever required or wanted the blood of goats and bulls because there was going to be a plan for him to die once and for all of us. And that's a great encouragement for us because 
despite what goes on in our lives, the unknown sin and the known sin, we know that we have atonement. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these chapters that are just, they're almost summaries of the Bible in in one chapter, and there's so many of them that we find throughout Scripture. And we see that your story doesn't change. Your story just keeps coming back again and again to your love for us, your provision to atone for our sin because we are sinners. We sin. We violate your law. We break your covenants. We, we disobey. And Lord, you still show us mercy. I pray, Lord, that we, if anything, embody the character of mercy that we are merciful people with, with our children, with our spouses, with our co-workers, with our neighbors, our friends. When, when people think of Christianity, Lord, that would be my prayer that they would think 